Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We get to come to your word. It is living. It is active. Every time we open it, it reveals to us things about ourselves, things about you. And we just ask as we look at this epistle that you have left for us, so we could ponder more on the gospel and more on our mission as a church, would you open our eyes this morning to see that? Would you incline our heart to your testimonies? And as always, would you help us to behold the glories of your Son, Jesus Christ? We love you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, this morning we're beginning a new series in the book of Philippians that's entitled Partnership for Gospel Growth. Partnership for Gospel Growth. And we love this uh, epistle for, for many reasons. It has the key verse. That says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It has a great Christological poem of Christ, how he humbled himself to the point of death and even death on a cross. The profound phrase that we always hear to, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain because Christ is so much better than this life that I'm living. Overall, it has a warm tone and the Apostle Paul speaks of Christ often. Yet this little letter that was written in around A.D. 62 during Paul's first imprisonment, located 10 miles inward of the north side of the GNC, is not just a good little book that gives us verses that we can use to put on Facebook during a hard time. I can do all things through Christ. Or right on the bottom of our shoe if we play basketball for the Warriors. But it packs a punch. It displays for us what true gospel ministry looks like, and it challenges us to live completely for Christ in all circumstances in our life. It teaches us to challenge, to give up all things for his sake, to embrace the role of the servant and to look to Christ as a role model who has already done that for us, to live heavenly minded and think about the heavenly kingdom and live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Do all these things sound very familiar? Well, they should because we just finished the book of Acts, which taught us many of the same things, that Christ is glorious, that we are on a mission, that the gospel is the centerpiece and the diamond of all of life, and that Christ is building his church, and he's using the gospel bomb to break hard hearts and radically transform lives and calling us to join in this work. Now, this letter is important for us for many reasons, but I just wanted to highlight two of them this morning. First and foremost, this book realigns Christ as the center of our solar system, the motivation for ministry. We read verses, if you would open with me to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7, and we're going to be looking over a few verses this morning, so have your Bibles handy we're going to be looking through the book as we're just looking at the introduction. Paul says in Philippians 3.7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Later on, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Well, go with me to chapter 1 in verse 20 and 21. It reads as, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And he's in prison right now and he's meditating on his life. And he is reminding us that Christ should be the solar system of our life as it was for his, to me, to live as Christ and to die is gain. In chapter 2, Paul makes Christ the role model of true humility. If you can open in chapter 2, in verse 5, we read this verse. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Reminding us of our union with Christ. In chapter 3, he presents Jesus as the one, in verse 21, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body. And in chapter 4, we see the sufficiency of Christ, where Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Whether I am in need or am I bounding, whether I am in prison or I am free, 
I can do all things through Christ. And ultimately, what Paul is teaching us through this book, probably many times you have taken up a study Bible or book on the book of Philippians, and you have said, you have read the title, The Epistle of Joy. Yes, joy is mentioned in this epistle more than any other book, but it's because of this fact that joy in the Christian life is relational and not situational. Joy in the Christian life is in a relationship with Christ and not situational. Second, I think that this book teaches us that the message of Christ is so important that we should partner for it. Look with me in verse 3 of chapter 1, what Chris read earlier. We see this idea of partnership beginning the book and also ending the book. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And if you look with me at chapter 4 in verse 15, in chapter 4, verse 15, he writes, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. The gospel is a centerpiece and the driving force for all life that goes on in the church. This morning we have gathered to rehearse the gospel. We as a church exist to proclaim the gospel. We read to grow deeper in knowledge of the gospel. We fellowship to share the fruit of the gospel that God is accomplishing in our life. We take the Lord's Supper, do this in remembrance of me, to remind ourselves of the gospel. And we confess sins to experience the power of the gospel. But there could be problems, oppositions, disunity, which could hinder the growth of the gospel. And this is what Paul is addressing. In chapter 4, he says, I entreat Udaya and Syntec to agree in the Lord. In chapter 2, he says, have the same mind among yourselves. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. And the question is, why is Paul bringing this ideas of agreement and unity and harmony as some of the key themes in the book of Philippians? It is because Paul is addressing a problem and saying that when there is selfishness, conceit, and looking to your own interests, that could be a hindrance to the growth of the gospel. And so Paul seeks to correct the problem with disunity and rivalry, and he calls his readers to imitate Christ, his humility, and his servanthood. And so together in unity, for them to stand firm because of the opposition. And so we notice quickly that this book is relevant to our daily life. We stand firm in unity. We stand firm against opposition. And we are in this mainstream culture of the Bay Area, just like Philippi was in a strategic location on the road via Ignacia that was a, a very important trade route that passed through the city of Philippi, dividing it in the upper and the lower towns, a place that a lot of people would cross through, a lot of people would come in, in contact with the gospel, and if, if the church was not unified, their witness would not be as great. And so this book is relevant for us. It will challenge us, just like Acts, to live for the purpose and the sake of the gospel, ultimately to put aside personal interests, selfishness, and differences, and work together for gospel growth. And so this morning, I want to give you four vital views for gospel growth. Four vital views for gospel growth. And these are four views that we're going to see that are going to be carried along as the themes in the book of Philippians. And the reason why I, we're going to be looking at four vital views in the first verse of the book of Philippians is because Paul deviates in his introduction and writes it slightly differently than he does his other epistles. What he is doing is he is going to show us what is coming afterward in the rest of the book. Many of us watch movies. And before we would go and watch a movie in the theater or decide to spend two hours of our evening behind a screen, we typically watch a movie trailer. And in the movie trailer, we find out who are the main characters, we try to understand the, the, the storyline of the movie, and we're hooked into 
we're hooked into this uh, movie with just a quick introduction of a one or two minute video, which, the, which keeps us or desires us to watch more. Well, in the beginning of the book of uh, Philippians, what Paul does is he highlights a few key elements that he's going to be coming back to again and again in the rest of the book. You see, he does this also in the book of Galatians, where he talks about that the gospel came not from man or through man, but through Jesus Christ. In Ephesians, he talks about the riches of the believer. In Timothy, he talks about how the church functions. In James, he ta- uh, we read about how Christianity looks practically. In 1 John, it's a book understanding how do you know if you're saved. Well, the book of Philippians is written to teach us about partnership in the gospel. And so there are four things in this introduction that we notice. And it's important for us as we think about four vital views, I want to highlight this idea of viewing something. The idea of uh, maybe a worldview or a vantage point. Uh, You probably wouldn't believe it, but San Francisco is uh, in the top 10 of the most beautiful cities in the world. And uh, it is one of the highly visited and sought after cities to visit in all of the world. And when I was in college over 10 years ago, I saw that it was between Tokyo and, uh, and Paris. And I thought, San Francisco, well, we live here. I've been there a million times. What's so special about it? Well, we, there's different ways of how we can view San Francisco. If you're on Market Street, it's very busy. You're going to have some homeless and there's panhandling. You might have one view of San Francisco. If you go to a little bit up the road on Market Street, you might get to Twin Peaks and you would look at San Francisco with a breathtaking view of the bay and the buildings. If you look at San Francisco from Golden Gate Park, you'd probably think that you're in a lush, you know, forest somewhere. If you were to view San Francisco from a plane, it would look like a very beautiful peninsula that would be wonderful to live in. Or if you are in Grizzly Peak on the other side of the bridge in Berkeley, San Francisco would look different to you. You see, the city looks different differently based on where you're at. And some people love it. Some people don't like it. And the, the reality is this, how we view the Christian life and how we view ourselves in the Christian life will dictate how we live. So how do we view Christianity when we look at Christianity? What are the things that come to our mind? And here Paul is going to give us four things that will help us to view Christianity the way that God has intended. And the very first one is this, view yourself as a slave. View yourself as a slave. In the very first phrase, we see these words, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And if you see, there's a little number one next to the word servants in your ESV Bibles. You come down, it says, for the contextual rendering of the Greek word doulos. So doulos simply means a slave. And instead of using the word slave, we substitute it for the idea of servants. But the idea is one and the same. The idea of slave emphasizes humility. When Paul writes to different churches, he decides to present himself and his introduction in different ways. In some of the churches, he has different titles. In Romans, he calls himself a servant of Christ, but also called to be an apostle. In 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he calls himself to be an apostle. In Galatians, an apostle, not from man or through man, but through Jesus Christ. In Ephesians, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. In Colossians, Paul, an apostle. In Timothy, Paul, an apostle. In 1 and 2 Thessalonians, just Paul. In Titus, a servant of God. In Philemon, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Paul decides to present himself here to the Philippians as Paul and Timothy, servants or slaves of Jesus Christ. This is what he is highlighting. He is highlighting the servitude that's going to follow in Philippians. He has credentials, but he decides not to use the credentials that he could use. And instead of doing that, he presents himself as a slave. He has this resume, and out of the things listed on his resume, he decides to use, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. You see, we are different people depending on the different contexts where we're at. If I'm at my job and someone asks me who I am, I'd say, well, I'm a pastor, or I am an electrician, or I'm an accountant. Well, you're at a, if you're at a barbecue at your kid's birthday party, you're just Ezra's dad. 
<laughs> you're just a father. That is going to be your title. That's how you present yourself, and that's how people know you. Paul specifically decides to present himself to the Philippians as a servant of Christ Jesus. So twice, other than Philippians, he calls himself this, but he includes an apostle. But specifically here, this is the only book he brings up the title slave, but doesn't bring up the title of an apostle. And although we know that he was an apostle. The reason why Paul does this is because he wants to show us three things. Three things to teach us when it comes to being a servant of Christ. And this is his goal. The very first one is this. The first reason is that he is choosing slave of Christ to fit well with a theme of submission and sacrificial service in the rest of the book. This is the purpose of the book of Philippians. is to show us that Christ himself was the servant and came to serve. Christ is the one who is an example for us. It fits with the objectives of the book. Christ is an example of humility, that there's no higher place someone has stooped from and there's no, no lower place someone can stoop into. And the reason why is because there's this rivalry going on in the church of who is better and who is greater. And Paul is saying, I'm a servant, and I'm going to show you one who is the greatest servant of all, who's been exalted to the highest place. Paul chooses a slave as his credential because it, the qualities of a faithful servant mesh with the exhortation of Philippians. Serve as Christ served them. Think about a servant or a slave when we think of that terminology. What kind of imagery does it bring to our life? A slave had no life of his own, no will of his own, no purpose of his own, no plan of his own. All was subject to his master. And so he is a slave, Paul says, of Christ Jesus. And we saw that through the book of Acts where Paul was presenting, Paul was following exactly what Christ had called him to. He didn't even deviate. He was following the leadership and the guidance of the spirits in the different locations. And he didn't account his life as really anything, but only to finish the race that God had given him. He understood who called him into this. You see, when we think about our life, our bank account is Christ, our time is Christ, and Paul's going to teach us that our life is also Christ. God used Paul for a specific ministry, just like he used Moses and Joshua and David and Jonah, a chosen instrument. And today God has called us out from this world, chose us for himself to do the work that he calls us to do. And so Paul belongs to Christ, and he speaks so much about Christ in the book. The third reason is this, that the gospel growth, the making of disciples is only possible in the context of humility. It's only possible when we have this mindset that we are servants of Christ, that we are on the mission of Christ. Christ is his life, chapter 1. Christ is the role model, chapter 2. Christ is more valuable than all accomplishments in chapter 3, and he's sufficient. And so, in this context of the book of Philippi, there are people who are boasting about their accomplishments in chapter 3. And Paul says, look at my credentials and look who I am, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Jew of Jews. I have more confidence in the flesh than anybody, but I count that all as rubbish. Paul is writing this to correct this problem of disunity and rivalry. And he puts Christ as the role model. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 2. I want you to see this. In chapter 2, in verse 2, Paul says this, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. Have this slave mindset, this servant mindset that I'm here to serve other people. We realize that as believers, we don't call the shots. The manual has been created for the church. God has already outlined what the Christian life looks like. We open up, we read it, we understand it, and we follow through with it. Our agenda is set for us in our life. We are here to be proclaimers of the gospel and the light of Christ. And so my question to you this morning 
Why do you serve Jesus Christ? Why do you serve Jesus Christ? Some might think, well, I, I'd better serve Jesus Christ because if I don't, God's going to do a certain work in my life that I might not like. Sometimes we might have this view of God, well, if I don't serve God, he has this big club, and if I kind of move out of the way, out of line a little bit, he's going to get me. You see, the right view to the answer of why do we serve Jesus Christ is this, Lord, you've overwhelmed me. I'm making a choice out of love to serve you as your servant. I choose to do this because you have shown me that you are greater and more precious than anything else in this world. And so in this very introduction, Paul emphasizes this humility of a servant and a slave of Christ. The second thing that we notice, the second vital view for ministry, is viewing ourselves as a partner. What Paul does is he emphasizes equality. The very first two people that he presents here is Paul and Timothy. He puts himself on an equal playing field with Timothy. This is the only time in the epistles you will read Paul and Timothy or somebody else. It's always Paul the Apostle, Paul the Apostle by himself alone. But Paul puts himself on a horizontal level playing field with Timothy because he's going to be highlighting in the rest of the book this idea of partnership, that we're all working together, we're equal, we're working in this mission that God has set us on. Paul breaks the normal procedure, and he condescends to add Timothy in the title as himself. There is no hierarchy. What do we know about Paul? He is called to this mission. He's an apostle who is untimely born. He's made this huge impact in Christianity. He has planted so many churches. He has done a great work. And you would think, really, Paul puts himself on the same playing field with Timothy? Think about this. We often hear conferences that say that the guest speakers at the conference are going to be John MacArthur and John Piper. But just imagine that the key speakers are going to be John Piper and Dennis Gerasimov, <laughs> or MacArthur and Anderson, or Piper and Tamita. This is what Paul is doing here. What he's showing is that the gospel levels the playing fields. Because later on in the book, he's going to call the Philippians to work together in partnership for gospel growth. Not only does he make himself equal to Timothy, but also with the Philippian church. In 1.7, he says, you are all partakers with me of grace. In verse 12, I want you to know, brothers. In 1.27, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Another way that we see this partnership is this idea, the overseers and deacons. Also only exclusive to the book of Philippians. The overseers, the elders, and the deacons. Paul is again emphasizing partnership. Partnership in the gospel. Once again in verse 5 we read that Paul is grateful to this church because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And that no church partnered with Paul except when he left Macedonia, except the Philippians. And so they need to partner to stand firm and to live worthy of the gospel. As I was reading this verse and studying these passages, it is very interesting. And by the way, this is probably the only time you're going to get one sermon from me on one verse. <laughs> uh, so, but... You know, when I, was, when I was studying this, I was thinking to myself, it is, it is very interesting that Paul is leveling the playing field, and he's saying we're all equal in Christ, yet we have different roles. And the reason why he does this is because I think it tackles one of the notions that we have as believers. These notions that come from the Orthodox Church or the Catholic Church, this idea of hierarchy, that we have the priests and then we have the people. That which the Reformation came to undo to make everybody one and the same in Christ. Yet with different roles, that we are part of one body, yet we have different members. 
You see, we need to be reminded of this again and again that in the Old Testament there was the high priest, the priest, and then the people. And the reason why the priest existed was to go before God and the people to make amends. But we read that Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and cows, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You see, he was the one who is now our mediator, our high priest, who gives us access to the Father. He is the one who has made us a kingdom and priests to our God, we read in Revelations 5, and we shall reign on the earth. You see, in 1 Peter 5, Peter does the same thing. Peter calls himself a fellow elder with the other elders of the church. And you would think Paul, who is in the second half of the whole book of Acts, Peter, who was the one there at the foundation of the church, they would be these great celebrities that everyone would just bow before and be in awe of. Peter and Paul are coming to visit our church. And what does Paul do? He brings himself to the equal playing field with everybody else. Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter 5. We need to work on our mindset and having the view in our minds that we are partners for gospel growth. First Corinthians 12, I want us just to pause here and to read this passage. It's going to be here on the screen. Paul writes this, For the body does not consist of one mem member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, I would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would they be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And we need to embrace this priesthood of believers mentality. Relationships in the church between coworkers should not emphasize authority, but humble equality. And so what is the partnership for that Paul is drawing the Philippians to and that he's speaking about? What is the purpose of this partnership? We have hedge funds that have financial partnerships. We have marital partnerships for those of us who are married. We have work partnerships. What Paul is talking about here is partnerships in the gospel. Once again in verse 5, because of your partnership where? In the gospel. In the work of spreading the good news. The gospel is a key word in this book and it's used nine times. And I want to just highlight to you the different areas where we see the word gospel come up in this book. It emphasizes the fellowship of the gospel, the defense and confirmation of the gospel. In verse 12, Paul's in chains and he's saying, this is good because the gospel is going out, the furtherance of the gospel. The conversation of the gospel, the faith of the gospel, the labor in the gospel, and the beginning of the gospel. Everything is seen in light of the gospel, whether it's the gift of the Philippians, Paul's own trials, or anything else in this book, it is seen in light and the importance and the weight of the gospel. Now, why is this so important? Why is partnership for the gospel important? And I highlighted in the beginning when we began, we were talking about the strategic location of the city of Philippi. It was located on this road called Via Ignatia, and this strategic geographical location was a place that a lot of people would travel through, and I want you to see it on the map here. On the left, you'll see that on the bottom right, you have Ephesus, and on the left, you have Corinth. And if you look on the top, you're going to see Philippi. And the map on the right, you really can't read Philippi because it's really tiny, but the point is that red line, that is Via Ignatia. That is the road, the commerce road that would go through the city of Philippi, connecting these different regions, and a lot of people would travel through it. And Paul is concerned that at that location at Philippi, because of the disunity, because of the arrogance, 
what could happen is that the gospel could not have the power that it should have. And so Paul is addressing, and he's highlighting the gospel is extremely important. And don't forget why you began your Christian life and what you're here for. It's about partnership for the gospel. So I want to ask you, do you see yourself as a partner in ministry? Do you see yourself as a partner for gospel growth? As, as Pastor Rod brought up this morning, we are actively committed to pursuing these relationships. We're not just passively receiving, we're actively committed. So do you sell, see yourself as a partner together with those who are around you for gospel growth? Are you invested in the things of Christ? Invested in the things of the church? Invested in the heavenly things more so with your time, your energy, and effort than invested in the earthly things with your time and your energy and your effort. This is what the book of Philippians is going to challenge us to do again and again. It's going to bring us back to the importance of the gospel. We've emphasized already humility. We need to view ourselves as slaves. We already emphasized equality. We need to view ourselves as partners. Now we are looking at exclusivity. We need to view ourselves as a saint. And Paul writes, the next phrase we see, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. This is who they belong to. He then brings up this phrase, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. The word saint is a word of exclusivity. What would be the difference between saying to the church at Philippi or to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi? Paul's choice of words using the church or using the saints is for him to bring about this point to remind them that they are the holy ones to remind them that they have been supernaturally set apart for a specific purpose. They're set apart from the world, the power of sin, the fallen flesh, and the dominion of the devil, and set apart for God his purposes and his kingdom. And this word saint, hagios in the Greek, is one of Paul's favorite descriptions of believers. And what it does is it reminds us of our position in Christ. I think that those who were at the church at Corinth didn't really feel that they didn't really feel like they were they were saints. They probably felt like they were failures, that they were in sin because of all of the turmoil that was going on. But in the very outset of the book, he calls them saints. And so the way that Paul addressed the Corinthians was not the way that they saw them, but the way that God saw them, and God sees them as saints. And when he gets to the book of Philippians, he does the same thing. He addresses them as saints, as those who are set apart, who are consecrated. And oftentimes in the English word, we use the word sanctify. They are the ones who are sanctified. And when we think of the word sanctified, we automatically think of this idea of the process of becoming holy. But one of the very interesting realities of the uses of the word sanctify in the New Testament is that 90% of the time, the word sanctified means set apart, meaning our positional standing in Christ and not speaking about our progressive sanctification. Because what God wants us to remember is that we are different. We are set apart from this world. We are cut off from this world and we are different. And this is what Paul is doing when he is addressing the church at Philippi and saying that you are saints in Christ Jesus. The Old Testament word in the Hebrew, Kadesh, to cut, means to cut apart from or to cut above something. So God cuts for himself a people from among all other peoples and says, now you are my people. I just want to give you an illustration of what this looks like. You have probably experienced this in your life. As you're growing up in your home or maybe your grandparents' home, Let's use the one about your home. You're growing up in your home, and I remember growing up in my home, we used to have this cabinet, cabinet that had windows in it. And inside would be china. 
It'd be fine china. And when was that fine china used? It was only used when special people came over or for special occasions. It was set apart. It wasn't used every single day. You wouldn't put that into the dishwasher on a daily basis. No, it was set apart for a specific time when you had a certain type of guest come to your house, maybe from a faraway location, a different state, or just someone who was, as we would like to think, on the upper level, that hierarchy that we tend to kind of have in our mind. And it would bring out that fine china. It was set apart for a specific purpose. So God calls us, he sets us apart, but he doesn't just set us apart to just be idle. He sets us apart for a purpose. He sets us apart to work in his kingdom, to be his holy people, to have a relationship with him. If we think about the people of Israel, what God did with them is when he chose them, God chose them and he gave them specific rules. He gave them the Ten Commandments. He gave them laws by which they should live for the purpose of displaying to the rest of the nations, this is who our God is. Come and see this glorious God. And the people of Israel were being used as an example of a people who would follow God. So, the second theme that we see in the book of Philippians, the first theme that we did see was this idea of servanthood. The second theme we see is this idea of thinking, to think. To think is used 10 or more times in this letter, and it's used in a couple ways. We need to think a certain way. This is why Paul is addressing them as saints. Don't forget your status in Christ. Think a certain way. And there's two Greek words we're going to think about together. Number one is skopeo, to notice or to consider. You guys hear the English word when I say skopeo? Scope. What was a scope for? What's a scope? To look through something, right? A telescope. So this idea is to notice or to consider. Paul's reminding them, consider who you are in Christ. Notice who you are in Christ. Think a certain way. And the second one is logizomai, which we get our word logic from, right? Reckon or think about. Think about who you are in Christ. You see, one's manner of life is truly a reflection of, of what occupies his mind. I'm going to read it again. One's manner of life is truly a reflection of what occupies his mind. And so what occupies our mind is going to reflect in how we live. And this is why Paul calls them in chapter 2, have the mind of Christ. Paul also does this for a specific reason. And the reason is because the church at Philippi is caught up too much in their physical current status on earth more than they are caught up with their eternal status in heaven. What I mean by that? What I mean by that is that the church at Philippi was a Roman colony with Roman privileges. And the Romans had privileges that would be that they the, the privileges that they would have are privileges that other people would not have. And so they had this pride in their privileges. They were special privileges. Luke writes in Acts 16, it was a city of Macedonia, the first of the district, a Roman colony. And so they, having these amazing privileges as a Roman colony, are forgetting the greater purpose for what their life exists for. And in chapter 1, verse 27, we read this verse, if you can open there with me, in 127 it says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life is one word in the Greek, which means this, living out a certain citizenship. Living a citizenship, the right citizenship. So what Paul is alluding to is he is saying that you have the citizenship as a Roman colony, and that's wonderful, and you have these privileges, don't forget you're also a saint. Don't forget your eternal status that you have. Don't forget that you are set apart and you are holy for the Lord. Yes, it's great to have privileges as we live in America, and I always tell my wife every few weeks or so, I'm so glad that we live in the United States. Tell me which other country you go to the, well, which other country? A lot of countries. But 
I'm going to list you a number of things that we're just extremely blessed with, especially in California. Apparently, in Minnesota, where my wife's from, they don't have a lot of fresh fruit happening, you know, in the wintertime. But here we are in California. We have avocados year-round. We have fresh fruit that ships in from different countries. We live in homes that, uh, you can, that can be heated. We're talking about the war that's going on in Ukraine where the, the heat is being cut off, the electricity, people are in the cold. We talk about the, the transportation and the comfort that we have when we live here. Sometimes I talk to people in other countries, whether in India or Uganda or Iraq. As I talk with them, I realize the privileges that we have living in America. Not only the physical things that we have, but also the peace. We're not worried about wars. We have, one of the, we have the greatest army in the world, we would say, and everyone would agree. So we're not worried someone's going to come in and invade us and take over. These privileges that come with being a citizen of the United States. But as we have all these privileges in America, remember your citizenship also that is in heaven, that you are a saint. We're all set apart, not just some of us. The setting apart and living differently is not just for the super Christian. It's not just for the pastor, for a leader, the one who leads in the song team or a small group leader. We are all set apart to all the saints in Christ Jesus. And so what about us? Do we become too caught up in our lives and forget our status as saints, do we have a different purpose in this world, a different worldview? How are we doing when it comes to our heavenly citizenship? We are sojourners on earth, therefore the passing things of the earth should be held lightly and the eternal things should be grasped tightly. We are sojourners and so the passing things of the earth should be held lightly, the eternal things should be held tightly. The fourth view that we see here is viewing ourselves as a member or part of the whole. Now we're getting into the nitty-gritty. This is extremely detailed. You think, Dennis, where did you do this? Are we doing exegesis or are we doing eisegesis this morning? I mean, you have, what, you have a point from just one word, the word all. Well, it is because this is the only time, other than Romans, where Paul uses the word all the saints. And there's a specific reason why Paul does this. There's a reason because he is going to again show the church at Philippi that they are a member. All of them are important for the whole to work together. What Paul is doing is he's using language in a certain way to convey something. If I told you that you need to tomorrow or later on this week on Wednesday Thursday, Thursday apparently it's going to rain. If on Wednesday morning you wake up and your spouse tells you, grab the umbrella, what are they saying? Are they saying it's raining? They're not specifically saying that, but because of what they are, the way they're using their words, they're implying that it's going to rain, that you should grab an umbrella so that you don't get wet. And so what Paul is doing here when he's using the word all the saints is that he is reminding them of greater truths that are going to come in the rest of this book. The other phrases that Paul uses in his epistles are to the saints, to the church at a certain place, or when it's speaking to specific people, to Timothy or to Titus. Why is Paul using this all-inclusive term, all? The reason why is because when it comes to partnership in the gospel, all are involved. This is the idea that I, that I heard many years ago that I love, that what God has called us to is not an option. Living missionally is not an option. It's not a survey that we get to take in our Christian life and choose, I want to live missionally. Yes, no, maybe starting next year. That's not what it looks like. Living for Jesus Christ, following him, is living missionally, and it's not an option. None are exempt from it. All are participating as partners for the work and the growth of the gospel. That is what the all is teaching them to do. What Paul is doing, he's also breaking down the 80-20 rule that this church was experiencing just as much as churches today are experiencing. 
which is the fact that at times 20% of members in the church do 80% of the work in the church. Paul is saying everyone should be involved. As we already heard this morning, we are actively committed. I think there's a danger to sit in church and think that the message is continually for the person that is next to you, that the message is for me, but just not right now, it's for me in the future, that this message is good, but I don't know if I really want to apply it in my life. There's this danger to put off, and in putting off, what we are actually doing is being disobedient to what Christ is calling us to do. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. It's not for the people who are more mature. It's not for the people who are less busy. We are all partners for gospel growth. You see, as we look at the four vital views for gospel growth, I will agree with you that it seems overwhelming. It seems like a tall task. It seems like as we're beginning the book of Philippians, there's a lot that we are thinking about. Viewing ourselves as a slave, viewing ourselves as a partner, as a saint and as a member, working on humility and equality and exclusivity and wholeness. It at times seems like a tall task what God calls us to do. And I will say yes. That is the reason why God has left us his Holy Spirit. He has left us his Spirit to empower us to do the work that he called us to do. You see, all of us as New Testament believers, the Spirit abides and resides within us at the time of our salvation until the time of our death. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was sent on priests or kings for a period of time for them to do the ministry and the work that they were doing. But for the New Testament believer, those who are in the New Covenant, God gives us His Spirit so that we can do the work that He calls us to do. This is why we have Scripture. This is why we have the community of believers to encourage and to help us to think differently in our life, to grow in Christ-likeness. But I think the greatest motivation in our life for why we should, as we are listening even to these four vital views for gospel growth, the greatest motivation in our life is Christ himself. Look in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, throughout this book, speaks of Christ over 50 times. Using the phrase, in Christ, in the Lord, in the Lord Jesus, what Paul is doing is reminding us that the believer's life and activities are all related to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Paul alludes to Christ as the one who takes central place in our life and in the church. He not only points to their standing in Christ and who they are in Christ, but also to find Christ, the very sphere of their spiritual life. You see, the focus on Christ provides the insight to Paul's motivation of why he keeps pressing on. Why does Paul keep pressing on when he's in jail? Why does Paul keep pressing on when he's in need? Why does Paul keep pressing on when life doesn't go as expected? It's only because of Christ. I want to go back with you to chapter 3 of verse 7. And I want you to see Paul brings us this lengthy list here about all of his accomplishments and all of his achievements. But he says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You know why everything else in life is not as great? <laughs> because the worth of Christ is so much greater. You know why I can press on in ministry through the times of being in prison and in jail and having need? Because the worth of Christ is greater. You know why I'm ready to die? I actually want to leave you, Philippians. Because I, it's better to be with Jesus, because, but because of your account, on your account, I'm going to stay. 
But I want to leave. Why? Because to die is gain. Why is die gain? Because Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. You see, this is the motivation that Paul has to live for Christ. He's not living out of a place of I have to. Paul never says, I have to do the Christian life. I have to come to church. I have to disciple. I have to attend group. Paul says, I get to. And I get to because Christ is so glorious. This is what drives us, friends, in our Christian life. And this is why Paul, throughout this book, is going to give us a high view of Christ. He's going to show us the supremacy of Christ, but also the sufficiency of Christ, that Christ is enough for us. He's going to show us the humility of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. He's going to show us the worth of Christ because what we need to constantly see is the glory and the beauty of Christ in our life. Otherwise, we revert to religious practices simply out of duty. Paul says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so, do you have these four vital views for gospel growth? And are you being motivated by Christ to continually have these views in your life? Viewing yourself as a slave, which emphasizes humility. Viewing yourself as a partner. Viewing yourself as a saint. And viewing yourself as a member in the body of Christ. As we have begun this wonderful book of partnership for gospel growth, I pray and hope that this morning you were challenged to live like this. You were encouraged to see Christ as glorious as he is. And as we have seen also, that through just one little verse, we can bring so much truth and reality because this is the word of God and not the word of man. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. It is perfect reviving the soul it is sweet satisfying our hearts it is a mirror re revealing to us where we need to change and how we ought to change oh it is a sword that pierces down to the bones and the marrows dividing the thoughts and intentions of our hearts oh how we love your word it is it quenches our thirst it satisfies our souls we thank you so much and the reason why is because your word is about your son jesus christ and we're going to read about him and study about him in this book. And I pray that as we do so, we would continually be transformed because we are transformed by beholding the glory of Christ from one degree of glory to another. Help us to see him. Help us to live for him. And help us to have these views in our life that we ultimately are yours, that you own us, that our life isn't our own, that it is yours. We pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.